for the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Eight years ago, I was lucky enough to be one of our church's representatives at the International Anglican Liturgical Consultation, which, if you think about the name, doesn't sound that lucky. But in fact, it was uh, an amazing event where we talked about uh, marriage liturgies without ever actually looking at a single marriage liturgy. Um, The purpose of the liturgical consultation is to provide background uh, thinking so that provinces who are revising their prayer books and thinking about what it means to write liturgy in their context context, um, have some uh, good background material to use as they do that, that working. And one of the presentations we heard uh, at one point talked about the World Lutheran's Church work on the relationship between culture and liturgy, uh, worship. And that uh, work suggested that there should be four ways in which culture and liturgy should interact. So I've talked a bit about this in the past, but just to remind you, uh, the first is that our liturgy, our worship, should be uh, transcultural. It should be above culture. It shouldn't uh, and some, there should be elements of it that, that is not affected by the culture at all. But there are other parts that need to be shaped by the culture. Um, we can't have everything we do so removed from the surrounding culture that no one has a clue how to engage it or what it's all about. But it also needs to be countercultural. There needs to be a part of our culture that speaks to part of our liturgy, part of our worship that speaks to our culture and critiques it and offers another way. And the last way that our culture interacts, our liturgy interacts with culture, is that it's cross-cultural. So, for example, if you go to an Anglican service, as I've been lucky enough to do, in uh, Brazil, where it was in Portuguese, or in Mexico, where it was in Spanish, or in Hong Kong, where it was in Cantonese, uh, even though I really didn't have much clue about what words were being said, because uh, I don't speak Portuguese or Spanish or Cantonese, I knew what we were doing in the liturgy because it's pretty much the same as ours. So at each point of the liturgy, I could think about what we would be saying in our liturgies and I could join in. So it allowed me to be cross-cultural. And while that work was done in terms of liturgy, I think those four things apply to Christianity in general. And if we look at the history of Christianity and the history of the church, you can see that those four elements have been at play. We have just wrestled from the point, from, from go, with how we are transcultural, how is Christianity contextual, how is it embedded in the culture of that time and that place, how is it countercultural, and how is it cross-cultural. There's been an ongoing tension. And there have been many sad examples throughout the history of our church when the church has operated out of the same values and fears and prejudices as the surrounding culture. Where the church has uh, had no point of differentiation from any other institution within that cultural context. So, for example, uh, today... Uh, because uh, we have a culture that is built on uh, needing to be large and needing to be wealthy, we have a thing called the prosperity gospel, where Christianity has said, 
Well, yes, that is the point of life, to be rich. And so clearly that's what God wants for us. God wants us to be rich. And so uh, come and join our church and you will be rich. And the pastors are rich, not surprisingly. And uh, the whole point of Christianity is to grow very large churches because that's, that's how it should be. So that's, a, that's an example of where our culture has shaped how the church has understood what it's about. Whereas we would say from a countercultural position, actually that's not what life is about and we wish to offer an alternative view. Worse, there are times when Christianity has become the main support for some of those values and fears and prejudices. One of the saddest times was one of the last institutions to oppose William Wilberforce in his campaign to outlaw slavery was the Church of England, who said, this is God's will, this is how it should be, our economies depend on slavery, how dare you try to disturb God's ordained economic order. Now, from our position, that's a tragedy. But from their position, they just become so contextual, so embedded in the context of that time, they were reinforcing what they thought was right. Or, more recently, the churches in the USA and South Africa, who not only supported but provided the theological foundation for racial segregation and for apartheid. So that's very recently that that was happening. And there are still Christians today who believe that what they were saying was right. And today's debate around the living wage reveals the tensions within Christianity. We're about to have that revealed in our synod next week where we have a motion about the living wage. And there are tensions within Christianity around our relationship with the values and the worldview inherent around us and how much we uh, take that on board and how much um, we stand against that and offer a countercultural point of view. That tension which started right back in the early church and has been all the way through remains today. How do we stand in the culture? How do we stand out of the culture? We can see that tension in all three of our readings this morning. For example, the writer to Proverbs uh, lived in a world where, yes, a name was important, but also, well, people liked being wealthy. And so there was an ongoing tension about what place we, we place on, what importance we place on being wealthy and what importance we place on our family name. How much do we give up of our wealth for our family name? Or is our family name dependent on being wealthy? And so the writer of Proverbs is saying, actually the family name trumps. The wealth is way less important. It's who we are that is important. Our generosity, our our hospitality, that's what's important. Or the writer, uh, James, in his letter to his church. Now James... Tradition tells us this is James, James the Just, James the head of the church in Jerusalem who is writing this letter. And he is known in history as someone who was very devout but also dedicated to the life of the poor, who took Jesus' words literally and he worked and lived amongst the poor of Jerusalem. And so his church had been known for its focus on the poor, for its egalitarianism. But now, as we read in his letter, 
It is slowly giving way to the norms of the day. It is slowly giving way to treating the wealthy, wealthy preferentially, seating them first, feeding them first, as was common. That's what happened in their culture. And James is saying that we can need to continue to stand apart from the wider society. Yes, those things happen in wider society, but they are not how we as a church should be operating. And so he is calling his church back to the way that they had once been, the way where all were welcomed. We might call that radical hospitality, the way that the rich were not treated any differently from anyone else the way in which the early followers of Christ have worked to meet the needs of the poor. He was writing a church that once had been countercultural and now was increasingly becoming contextual, shaped by the same fears and prejudices, the same attitudes that the wider society was shaped by. The reality is the pull of our surrounding culture and the way we grew up is always very strong. But James reminds us that of the transcultural nature of our Christian faith, and our task is to be countercultural. So where did James get and his church get these crazy ideas from? Well, from Jesus, and from stories like that we heard this morning. Actually, this morning's story is a pretty interesting story, isn't it? Especially the first one. In many ways, it's a deeply disturbing story. Now, just to remind you about last week, Jesus, in last week's reading, was having an intense conversation with Pharisees about the eating rules. Now, the eating rules weren't mosaic rules, they weren't law, but they were the traditions of the elders, which means... They were the cultural rules that had grown up in part to protect the Mosaic law, but in part because they were just cultural norms that had grown up over the centuries. And the cultural rules around washing favoured the rich. They were pretty elaborate and they were not easy to do. So if you had time on your hands, which wealthy people tended to have, you could indulge in them. And if you were poor, trying to make enough to have enough bread to eat each day, they became a little superfluous. And so there was this cultural norm which favoured the rich and effectively said if you were rich, you were clean, and if you were anyone else because you didn't do these, you were unclean. In contrast to the prophets and our reading from Proverbs, for example, the wealthy became favoured. And everyone else, especially the poor, was discriminated against. And so in this Last week's story, Jesus offered a countercultural response. And he said, It's not what goes into a person that makes a person unclean, which is what his culture said, but it's what's already there on the inside. And he went on to affirm what the poor were doing, which again was a countercultural thing. The poor were forced not to do all this elaborate washing because of lack of resources. And he said that was fine. And so in doing so, he offered an alternative to the predominant cultural practices of the wealthy. At that point, we could describe Jesus as being countercultural. And then he took that countercultural activity 
and he entered the Gentile part of his world, where most of the people were of Greek descent, and some of them were even Syrophoenicians. And so we have these two stories which lead up to the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, which if we kind of ambled our way through Mark, we would hear next week, but we've already had a feeding story, so we skip that altogether. But his time in this part of the world does not start well, does it? He's confronted by a Syrophoenician, a woman of Greek descent, woman. So on both accounts, this is pretty confrontational stuff. Women do not speak to men. Certainly Greeks don't speak to Jews and Jews don't speak to, to our Gentiles. And he is confronted by her. And in this story... Jesus shows all the prejudice that you can expect from a Jew of his time. The same kind of prejudice that you see in the Middle East still at work today, in fact see all around the world today. Now we can try to dress that up, and William Barclay and his commentaries works really hard to dress it up and say, well Jesus is just joking. But actually, when you call someone a dog... You have to be an Englishman to really pretend that that's joking, really, don't you? That's, that's pretty, pretty insulting stuff. We are confronted with Jesus' humanity. Part of our understanding is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, which I think most of us think about means that Jesus was kind of God and as nice as God and all-knowing as God in a human form. But here, actually, in this story, we have Jesus, who is fully human, and kind of gets it, but kind of doesn't get it, and is in himself still trying to understand the global ramifications of what he's talking about. He thinks, I'm here for the people of Israel. And this woman says, actually, you're here for everyone. What you're talking about, that applies to everyone, even me, the Syrophoenician woman. And he is suddenly confronted both with his own bigotry and with what he is talking about, where that might lead. There's been a lot in the news over the last few weeks about refugees, especially the last week, especially with the picture of the dead Syrian boy in Turkey. And two of the journalists who have put a lot of effort into that are Duncan Garner and Heather Duplessis-Allen, who have been on television about that and written articles about that, suggesting that we should, in this country, be raising our quota. So I went online and I read Heather Duplessis-Allen's article about that, because one of my people I knew at school, we might call him, had... uh, put her article up on Facebook and had been very rude about it, we might say, disparaging. And as I read all the comments on that article, they were, well, if we were generous, we'd call them mixed at best. A lot of the reaction to her article showed exactly the same bigotry as Jesus was showing, exactly the same kind of reaction. Some of the comments were... No, we don't need to take more. We have finite amount of resources and there are an infinite amount of people wanting to come here. Why bother with immigration points? Let the Muslim countries take them. We don't want them. Let's call it as it is. Refugees of Islamic faith are a potential source of social unrest. If not them, 
then probably second generation. Look at France, Belgium, Sweden and the UK. And so it goes on. Actually, they were some of the politer ones. To be honest, it was really hard to find any comment. And there were a lot of hundreds of comments on that article. And I scrolled down them and there was, I don't think I found a single comment in support of what she was saying. Maybe because people like me who thought they might comment just thought, why bother and didn't. And I know that some of those, because I know my friend goes to church, my friend from school, we'll call him, uh, a lot of those commenting are good churchgoers. Good church-going people caught up in the same fears and the same prejudices as everyone else. So what happens in today's story with the Syrophoenician woman? Well, Jesus says to her that the food should only be given to the children and not to the dogs. The attitude to others is the same attitude to others as we see in the comments to the debate around refugees. But in this story, it is the woman who confronts Jesus. And she confronts him with his own words. She shows up all his bigotry, all his culture's bigotry, all his religious bigotry. She becomes the voice of God in this story. Not Jesus. We're used to Jesus being the voice of God. But in this story, it's the woman. She is an outside voice calling Jesus out of the boundaries of his cultural understanding. It's an astounding thing. And it raises, for me, a really big question. Why on earth did Mark include the story? He didn't have to. He's not writing a history. This is a pretty unkind story to Jesus. I mean, you would have thought he would have left it out or changed it. Made it a little bit more complimentary. But he included it. What was going on in his community that this story needed to be in his, in his gospel? This very unflattering story. It's a story that doesn't fit how we or our culture thinks things like this work. I mean, we think Jesus is the one with the answers. We even have that as a motto. Jesus is the answer. But in this story, Jesus isn't even asking the right question. The woman is the one with the answer. The woman is the voice of God. Jesus is the one being called to account. Called to let go of his cultural assumptions and prejudices. Clearly Mark thought that his community needed to hear the story. That they too needed to let go of some of their cultural assumptions and prejudices. And he needed a forceful story to help them hear that. But also, he thought they needed to hear an outside voice. Which raises the question for us, whose voice on the outside is calling us today? Whose voice is calling us to account? Whose voice highlights how we, like Jesus, are captured by the prevailing fears and prejudice of our day? Whose voice 
is pointing out to us that we have become pillars supporting our cultural values, prejudices and fears that allow other people to be seen and treated as dogs. The history of Christianity is one of struggle. A struggle between how much we shaped by the context that we live in and with all its prejudices and fears and how much we are able to stand outside that culture, to be a countercultural voice, to be something that spans cultures. At times we are embedded in our culture and sometimes we are the voice outside that culture, like the woman in the story, offering an alternative way of seeing the world as James and Mark offer us. Seeing the people who live in the world really seeing them as people and knowing how to respond. And we are caught in exactly the same dilemma. We are caught in that same tension. And the issue that's right before us now is the Syrian refugee crisis. But in fact, there are millions of refugees around the world today. And they invite us to take time to reflect on how our response to that is shaped by our common fears and cultural prejudice. Our fears around that our jobs might be taken or that our nation might be changed or that our community might look different or that our resources will be spread more thinly or that our place in the society will be changed somehow or for us that Christians will no longer be the majority although we're nearly there anyway. It invites us to, uh, to another view. A view based on Jesus mostly expressed compassion and generosity. Based on Jesus' radical hospitality. Following the example set by people like James and William Wilberforce. So whose voice are we listening to today? Whose voice are we being invited to listen to? What cultural assumptions are we being invited to let go of? Like Jesus, what new ways might we embrace as we hear the story? <laughs>